listen to Ink Studs, and this is the 500th episode. I was trying to think of something brilliant to say at the beginning, but I don't have anything brilliant. Um, instead, I'm going to introduce my brilliant guests, Frank Santoro and Brandon Graham. Um, I was thinking about how I was going to plan a 500th episode. Um, I've been really bad at keeping track of the episode numbers. I only realized about a, two months ago, 500th was coming. Um... But I, I thought about these two guys in particular um, because they've both been on a bunch and I've really um, valued both of them as friends in comics and folks that we like bounce off ideas from each other. Frank came to Vancouver a couple of years ago and stayed with Brandon uh, for about a week and there's a lot of hangouts and a lot of talking comics and it, it, it's kind of interesting to me thinking about doing Ink Studs for eight years um, eight and a half years so far. Um, it's, it's a bit of time. And, and thinking about 2005, and um, one of the things to think about also the context of, of both of you guys is not only have comics changed a lot, but even comics for you have changed a lot. And thinking about like where you were then to where you are here, and like how yeah. you kind of approach the medium now compared to how do you approach the medium then and and I think I guess there's a lot of questions to unpack there um, so I guess first thanks for coming on guys yeah congratulations Robin yeah congratulations Robin thank you for having us thank you Brandon I'm glad I could tear you away from your 150 issues of furlough you've been reading this past it's week it's in a couple issues I'm not going to lie but... <laughs> um, for those those that don't know, Brandon just bought 150 issues of the Prime 1980s furry comic series Furlough. 1990s, and they were gifted to me because the comic store, the local comic store, Golden Age here, just realized that there's no way they could sell those because they had them shrink wrapped for $100. <laughs> so, um, Frank, when you first came on, um, I'm forgetting what it was, six or seven years ago? Yeah, I think probably 2007. Yeah, and you would... Uh, the Storyville re-release had just came out, I think. Yeah. And, uh, um, and I, yeah, I was familiar with the show, and there was a... I, I, you know, I just... I, rem I, I remember listening to some of your earlier episodes. It's funny to think that you were only doing that for like two or three years then. Is that right? Yeah, two years at that point. Hey, Brandon, is, is 2005 when the King City Small Manga Edition came out? I think it must have been around then or 2006, maybe. I was yeah. in on it. It's crazy to think that that's, you know, like eight years ago. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's depressing to think about. I mean, again, I've been cranking out tons of books, but then I almost feel like I feel like I should have done more in that time loss. Oh, whatever. But for but both, sorry, but Robin's done 500 episodes of Ink Studs in that time. See, so yeah, he's beating us. I don't sleep. He's <laughs> recorded snoring episodes and puts them up as number number 320 is done. <laughs> snoring is farting, chapter 12. <laughs> now, for both of you, though, like Frank's the re-release Storyville kind of feels like an important kind of career point in a way um, looking at like your arc I feel I feel really douchey even just the way I just said that I'm sorry um, that's okay. 
Yeah, it's uh, but like, do do you feel like the way I'm saying, um, not speaking properly, um, like Storyville at that point, uh, with some cold heat issues out, um, kind of like an important point in your cartooning career? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was really important, and like it was a it's a really good, great time, like um, um, like pre midlife crisis you know it felt really good to like uh have your book out before you feel you know that thing was just lost to history and then somebody like dan wanted to put it out and it just you know it uh, resurrected me so to speak as a as a comics creator because um that was the only book i had done at that point really did people treat your work differently seeing that after seeing issues of cold heat Oh, totally. People thought when they saw Cold Heat that I was just a fucking moron. How was Storyville originally presented? Was it put out in kind of magazine format, or was it... It was a a tabloid newspaper. So, so like, you know, just a folded over 11 by 17 newspaper, but... um, um, so in 2005, we're talking about like when it came out in the giant, nice printed edition. Yeah, like it looked, you know, it's like uh, 11 by 17 or something. And everybody, I remember trying to give one to Jaime Hernandez, and he was like, "Yeah, but like I can't, you know, carry it around with me. You know, I, I, can you mail it to me, please?" <laughs> it is. It is interesting to think about how much just print affects how people perceive the world. I, I never occurred to me until I was. I had my first comic printed when I was like 19 and gone to conventions and got lots of, you know, reasonable amount of attention from it. And then the next year after that, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm much better now. I'm just going to do a photocopied book and how little respect you I got for the same, for work that I thought was superior to the previous book just because it was made in Kinko's as opposed to, you know, printed an actual, you know, with a glossy cover and everything. Yeah. I think about that stuff a lot because, you know, the, did you guys see that thing I did on the journal today? Like I found uh, Anders Nilsson's mini comics and on uh, Adrian Tomlin's mini comics at Kevin Heisinger's house. Like he had the original editions just stashed away, and uh, it's amazing to see those things because they're just the most—they're just these really cheap Xeroxes, but they're so awesome, and they—they they became this giant thing for both of them ultimately you know and it's just um i really appreciate that in comics that you can or i mean now there's web comics of course right you know but you don't have to make little mini comics but it's just interesting and that's sort of the thing that's really changed in you know the last decade is that you know you don't necessarily have to do cool mini comics but uh, it's just uh, one of the things i love I'll about stop talking about the oh never stop frank um, one of the things I love about those old optic nerves is just how quickly you see his style developing and him coming into his own as a cartoonist. You see him like taking a lot of risks early on, um, the, which are really interesting, but you see him also kind of working out what works for him and what he potentially could be happy with, um, yeah. with what he's creating. I mean... Yeah, it's like it was like his blog or something at that point, you know. It's weird though because it, it really feels like personal comics, and when he cleans up, he he almost you know he almost just jumps into Dan Cloud's lap in a lot of ways. 
And yeah, but it's funny. You can see, like, I can see in those early issues, like, you can see him, like, like looking at, like, like Burns-style inking. Like, you know, everybody was trying to ink, like, Burns at a certain point, you know, like, doing hair or whatever. And, you know, you know it's like he, he's trying out these different influences. And then the Klaus thing, I think, you know, you, you wonder about that, but it's almost like that kind of default cartooning that almost every, not everybody, but so many people were trying to do at that time there was like mike allred was trying to do i mean all, i mean mike allred lays like charles like charles burns plus dan Klaus plus john buscema or something Jaime, like you need a lot yeah, of high yeah, yeah. yeah. But, all that, but all that stuff is really coming from like like those are all like what like 1950s style yeah it's interesting because that's like that was such like 1950s was such the wheelhouse of 1980s or early 90s indie comics Yes, 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 absolutely, Brandon. You're so right. It's like that people forget that that's what there was. I was just thinking about this, like, you know, what Klaus was doing, doing old record covers and stuff at that time was so weird to see, like, Lloyd Llewellyn as, like, a throwback thing. Like, that's hard to remember now that how weird that was to see that kind of throwback style. And it's weird they all they all left on of that because it's not like that was their childhood, you know, like that, you know, well, Jaime definitely, like, taking comics that he would have read um, from his older brothers or stuff that his mom had. So them getting, like, Ink Ketchum, Dennis the Menace, and, like, you know... They had that shit, though. Yeah. Like, comics or whatever that, have been, that were reprinted since the 50s and being like, that's, that's the aesthetic I'm going for. And, like... Burns, you know, he he looks younger than he is, maybe. Yeah, was... but his dad had like this weird. I think it didn't. His dad have some weird like clip book of of comics too, or maybe I'm I'm imagining like he. But it's like he, you know, they both had this connection. They all all those guys like had a yearning for the older comics, you know, right? Like, so that's an interesting just thing. But that was also in the culture too, like garage rock bands and you know there was a lot of throwback stuff in the early 90s that is yeah, hard to think of um like like bad ska like radio ska that would have like uh, i'm not spacing on the names but yeah it was interesting because I, I was thinking about that and how much a lot of the people who i'm interacting with are are rooted in that same way kind of rooted in the 70s and i'm certainly rooted in like the 70s or the 80s and what i my aesthetic mm-hmm I don't know. It's, just, it's weird. It's like I almost want to pick on the 50s style stuff, but I'm, I'm kind of do the same stuff just from a different era. Right. Yeah. That, sorry, Rob. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just because that's. I mean, that was always my that was my old riff on Brandon, right? From you know back in the day, was that he was the fusion of you know, you know, for Baudet and Mobius and so many other current more current younger styles. And I thought that that was what I noticed, you know, readers responding to at the comic book shop, you know, when they would see uh, King City and, and stuff like that. You know, there was this different, like, 70s, you know, vibe, slight throwback, but it's more, like, you know, integrated into your consciousness. Like, you know, I talked to Dash about this, like, like the high-low thing. Like, you don't see it as influences. You just kind of just absorb it and do it and are mashing all the shit together, you know? Right, you gotta you gotta eat it and turn it into you. 
I would say there's a difference yeah. between, like, you'll see a lot of people influenced by Mobius, and I would say there's, there's a very different thing between eating his work and processing and making your own work as opposed to people that just try to, like, wear his skin and don't, you know, don't make it their own. Um, Matt, like, don't even try to do his hatching. Like, if you're just trying to do his hatching, just give it up right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the equivalent of, like, trying to do manga by just adding action lines or something. And missing. <laughs> One of the things I think last time you were here, Frank, or the time before, when you were here for quite a bit of time, uh, we were talking about is the idea of um, acknowledging your influences and working through them. Yeah. And I'm wondering, um, we're back a couple years later after your fateful trip here, and have you had any more thoughts on that? Any, like, doing your teaching and um, approaches with students of, like, how do you get your own singular identity? Yeah, that is really interesting because a lot of the, um, my students are asking me, for example, should they try to draw like in their own, in a personal style or should they copy a style? And I, I find that such a funny question, you know, and then what I try to tell them is that I almost want them to draw in a generic uh, documentary style and, you know, to watch them uh, parse that out for themselves is really interesting because sometimes figure drawing might not be a, a strength for certain artists but then they can kind of make up symbols for everything that then if you encourage them to go in that way and then they just sort of like they're not necessarily working through an influence as it is just like some language and you almost want to tell them yeah like copy whatever you want, do whatever you need to do that's going to like help you cobble this thing together. So I still, I do think that's important, but maybe not copying like, like Mobius's marks or, 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 uh, you know, something so, so Brandon's, you know, oh, I don't know, puns or something, you know, like whatever, <laughs> like you have to make your own thing, but, you know, like really it's just what's, what's going to work for you to get your, message across right just kind of so is there what do you mean a documentary style does that mean not just trying to draw from reality almost i almost always say think matisse like you know matisse could draw in this like almost cartoony like realistic style that was was like he was obviously looking at the object and uh, you know whereas picasso would like totally change it you know around but like a documentary style like um, bef have you ever seen like uh, um, illustrations from around the turn of the ni 1900s like you know um, or before they had photographers for newspapers where they would send a re reporter quote unquote out into the field and he would right. draw it's almost, it's almost yeah. like a court reporter yeah like it's almost like this there's a documentary style of drawing that I think is like uh I call it naturalism. You know, there's you're 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 just seeing what you're seeing, and you're trying to just render it what it is. And I some people call that contour line drawing, um, and it's not like stylized like so much. And and that's hard to get. Um, not hard, but you know, I think comics has a connotation of you have to draw in a comics style. And I don't know if that's necessary. I never quite got that from. Like, I, I've heard people kind of talk about, like, developing style and everything, and 
and obviously I was always trying to draw all the things around me, but I never had a conscious thing that I was trying to draw anything other than, uh, like when I think about my work, I think about it more serious or more realistic than when I actually sit down and look at it. Because it is obviously, it kind of, back kind of to, to cut myself off, back when we were talking about different styles, I was thinking of looking at like Nathan Fox's work and how it's really interesting. I was going through one of his art books recently, and there's there's parts in it where you can see things that look exactly like his lines, and there's other parts that you can see the Paul Pope kind of overlaying it. And it's it's really strange. I'm wondering, like, I wonder if a guy like that, if his early kind of pre-Pope work, because he's, you know, he's, a, he's not a super young guy. I wonder if his pre-Pope work looked more like his own stuff and less influenced by that. Or yeah. Or conscious decision. Um, I, 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 since he'll never listen to this, Robin, I can say like, so I was saying to, uh, I, I said something to David Mazzucchelli that, uh, the new, I like the new Hawkeye because, you know, like, you know, sometimes the drawing reminds me a little bit of his and he goes, people tell me that, but I don't, I don't see, I don't see that. I think it's so obvious that it's like, and I was just, I was just like, well, Oh, come, I was like, come on, you know, like, you, for, I, I don't know how I explained it to him, but, I, you know, like, I was just like, look, like, there's this, like, Alex, you know, we could talk about this type of style that is, you know, Mazzucchelli or something, or Batman Year One, or Daredevil Born Again, or something, but there's, it is interesting how that's pervaded a lot of, like, Daredevil comics and Batman comics, where it, you know, people play around with that stuff. Wow, and really nicely, I think. I think it, sometimes it looks really handsome, and I don't have a, yeah. I don't have a problem with it or something, you know. I'd rather them doing stuff like that than say more Jim Lee type comics. Yeah, yeah it's just about. It's just interesting. It's, it's weird because it's like that's that's such a style that almost doesn't really belong to anyone anymore. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of toffee, but it's such a house style for him almost, and then. Mazda Kelly kind of put it on and wore it better than anyone else and threw it away and won't touch it again, you know? Sure, <laughs> sure. But then that's what, but the, this is what's interesting to me is just this, like, language thing where you're talking about, like, like this is, like, shop talk, right? Like, we're just, you know, like, we're talking this stuff about styles that maybe most, most people, I think, comics readers know what we're talking about, and some might not, but still, like, I discern those things as a maker, right? And then as a teacher or a, a, or whatever, like I'm just trying to like articulate what that is. And I see those things and I don't necessarily think that they're good or bad or anything like, but you know, like when you're saying Brandon, like that you don't think of your style, like, you know, you're rendering like you, you know, without the overuse of photo references or something, you're very capable of rendering a scene like, you know, as a cartoon, like as a as a doodle, as a notebook drawing to yourself that you've developed your your personal language over years, right? You know, it's not something you're like consciously trying to like, like make like a magician or something. You know, but then at the same time, with saying that, there's also things where you know where you'll be drawing. Like lately, I've been doing lines where I just feel like the Marion line, like like my time misses, and then at the same time, like. You know, there's certain things where I'm like, oh, I'm going to do a Mobius thing here. This is like an Adam Warren trick. You know, there, there becomes that kind of thing. We kind of think of of uh, things you got from other places, really, obviously. Yeah. Right, right. 
Yeah, but like, um, but I I know what you I you know like I know what you're talking about when you're talking about like like Marion's lines or Adam Warren's lines, but then you know, that's something for you know like Dylan Williams just to try to bring this back to like comics making is like Dylan Williams used to always try to say like go, you know just draw the things that you that influence you and want, and you want to do and like that's what I was trying to get at a little bit with the you know, work through your influences, just to bring it back to your original question, Robin, it's just like, you know, work through that stuff. And then maybe you can, I can shed, you know, some of the influences that like, you know, or, you know, loom over me something, you know. Well, the weird thing of like, especially just working through influences, like if you're going to ever be on the level of your influences, you kind of have to regard them as human beings and see their flaws and see, also see where they're, you know, where they're doing things that, you know, you have no hope of getting touching, you know what I mean? Hallelujah, yeah. Now, Frank, um, to, to put the focus on you and uh, Pompeii, um, tell me about the stylistic development for that book, because um, it feels pretty different, and uh, I'm guessing presumptuously a lot of it or some of it's come out of the kind of bigger paintings you're doing for a while yeah i mean this is going to sound you know uh, i mean i don't know how this will sound but like i i a lot of that drawing comes from like drawing um my girlfriend where you know like you're just trying to draw her foot or her leg or her face or you know, and you just want to, like, make a good drawing, and it's like the drawing of your loved one, and, you know, you're you're trying to impress her a little bit or something, and then, like, a lot of those drawings are bad, you know, and it doesn't look like her at all, and it's not, you know, flattering or something, and so a lot of the drawing for Pompeii was from, like, working with the the model, so to speak, and then the story is about drawing portraits and painting portraits so you know I've painted portraits I've drawn larger you know whatever but like you know still that's an intimate thing and when you're drawing intimately you know like that it's not I mean, it's a game but it's like it's a sincere thing like that you're you know you're trying to capture something and, I, and that's it's almost like uh, in comics like is that is that okay to do? You know, sure it is. But, you know, those are more like notebook drawings or no, notes to myself or something for me. And and then so this book, I wanted it to be like that. And it's like, almost like a sketchbook or it's like my own personal notebook. And then that's what the story's about. And it's about drawing your loved one, you know, and really the back. What was that, Brandon? So, I said, really, it's really. I was thinking that when reading it, like I read it right before the show again, and and it was it was it feels like it feel the panels feel like like sketchbook drawings. Like there's there's some really cool parts that I like where where Frank is like he he's like you can see the lines he's erased in it, and there's parts where he'll like draw an arm in one position and then just like draw it more finished next to it, and so it feels like he was in Pompeii doing doing life drawings of. Of the step around him, and at the same time, he's got, you know, he's got the main character as an artist assistant, and knowing that Frank did that himself, I was remembering there's, like, how much Frank 
does the assistant do that you had to personally do? Like, to the point where they're both painting on the same canvas? Uh, well, that's, like, my kind of one embellishment, honestly, that I'll admit to is that uh, uh, when I would work for every painter that I've worked for, they never let me paint on their canvas, but I would prepare their canvas. And so it's hard to explain, but you would, I would paint on this ground before then they would paint the color over top of it. So I might, I would prepare the canvas and they would actually be working maybe on another part of the canvas or kind of standing there. But I would just like, you know, while they're making the portrait, like I was, I was helping. And so it's like, you know, and that's part of the story too, which is like that as an assistant, you're not the, you're not, not the star of the show. You're the, you're the, you're, you're in the background. And, um, and that's part of it too. And then, you know, I'm drawing like in the, in the, in the story that I'm drawing like on the wall and, um, it's supposed to be like not important, like, whereas the painting is supposed to be important and but my drawing might be better than his drawing <laughs> you know what i mean and your and the drawing in the wall are the ones that survive right on because everything else burns oh yeah, yeah. that's important yeah, i was, I was in, in watching i watched this interesting talk recently on graffiti in pompeii and something i kept thinking about reading this was about how um you know a lot of stuff that survived was them just leading little messages to each other like like you go to a fancy person's house you know you go to a fancy house not they don't have to be that fancy but uh, people would write a line of poetry just like you know the the length that you the, the size that you would write it on a piece of paper just so yeah. would discover it and be like oh look they've written the clever thing on the wall it's almost like free television ways to entertain your guests which I thought was kind of yeah to handle you know wall literacy yeah, it was kind of neat because, like, I actually, it sounds so silly. It was neat when I was there. Like, it sounds so trite. But uh, when I was there, I basically saw graffiti there that was like, you know, Frank was here, ha-ha, <laughs> you know, or something. And I just thought, that's just so amazing, you know, just that it's just so honest, you know. And, and I wanted to capture that in the story, too, right? So, like all the drawings I've seen from Pompeii made by artists at that time are not in that style, but like just this kind of like, it's, it's rough, like um, Etruscan art, which is the region around uh, Pompeii, like they were kind of like Greek copyists. So they weren't as good as the Greeks, you know? So like that stuff, the Roman stuff, the Roman copies aren't as good. So I'm, I kind of think of myself when I'm drawing this stuff is like, I'm like a Bush League, you know, uh, uh, you know, old master or something, if you will, right? So like, I'm trying and like, and that's the earnestness of it. And that's what I hope to convey is like, I know I'm not masterful in my drawings yet. I'm going to, with the sheer will, try to convey this emotion of a loved one as best I can. Right. I'm wondering about like the I'm going to say populist but it's not what I mean um, of doing of being a cartoonist doing this book and kind of those parallels of 
kind of drawing on the wall, drawing in comics. Yep. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very popular. I'm, dude, I'm trying to, like, like someone wrote a uh, Hillary, uh, what's her name? Is it not Brown, is it? Like, what's the, Shoot. somebody wrote a review. It, it's not, I can't remember. Like, somebody wrote a review um, of, of Pompeii and, like, made a, almost joke that it's like Titanic and like I was purposely going for the most you know soap opera backdrop to then as counterpoint try to play off these very sincere basic drawing notebook doodle thing right you know so um, the populist idea of it like doing a historical fiction doing something like, there's a friggin', you know, million-dollar movie coming out about Pompeii right now. Like, Pompeii is, like, you know, it's, like, trying to, like, you know, stand in the middle of the market square and, in like, ring a bell, you know? I'm doing it on purpose. Do you think Flavius felt bad at the end after he uh, escaped to Rome or whatever? No, he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> is that telling of uh master artists and their uh <laughs> yeah i mean you know i don't i i mean like in, in a way i hope he you know sues me or whatever for you know something but it's just kind of like you know it's classist right i mean this is a class no this is what we don't talk about you know in the world anymore you know it's like class like you know i'm like the poor kid from the other side of the tracks and he's like you know the well-to-do guy and like that's that's really what it's about and you, know, you live in a very class-based city it's a working right. a working right. man city yeah i mean you my 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 the whole thing is transparent like you know it's like i just took my story and put it into pompeii you know and then embellished it just to the point of myth or whatever right you know like i just went all the way you know for the most corny um you know what i mean like if i just if i tried to tell the story of like when i and then i moved to new york and was selling paintings and hanging out with big shit you know like this sounds so stupid like who gives a shit but like if i try to go this other way and turn it into something you i mean is it corny to say universal is it corny you know like it's almost trying to be basic like it's like yeah. i'm just basic like basic basic storytelling basic panel layout basic uh color palette like you know it's the red chalk that you use in art school you know i mean i'm drawing like the most basic bullshit thing like i'm i'm trying to go like the complete opposite of alex ross <laughs> 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 now yeah so now we can segue into and that's see that's something that's changed me so now, like, that kind of, like, war would be fought on Twitter or something, you know? Oh, I don't think, but Brandon, do you know about Frank criticizing Alex Ross? Uh, I've heard him take jabs in there once in a while, but I don't, I don't feel like Alex Ross is really in much of a defensible position, but I know where Frank doesn't like it. I wrote an introduction recently for uh, a Terminator comic that Alex Ross drew. Oh, and, okay. and it was really funny, because I read the comic, and, and I enjoyed it, and but I made fun of it in the introduction, and him and the writer both asked that my they they published it removing three paragraphs where I was making fun of the book. 
I just thought it was so fucking like I, it was one of those things where like I, I could I could post the original one, but it, it felt like petty at that point. It was like fine, he's my introduction. I know that it was just like a pop thing, but like there there are these like it was because they both wrote introductions for it too, and the writer admitted in his introduction that he was only doing Terminator so he could as like a back in the eighties so he could get a job doing Green Hornet. What <laughs> crazy asshole wants to be Green Hornet more than Terminator comics? And then Alex Ross was like, I don't think he cared about Terminator much either. And they did this stuff like the story starts and it's like, um, like who even knows what year it is? Who even knows what day it is? And, and so I was like, wouldn't it, you know, wouldn't you need to know the dates to run like a military operation? And then there was like, there was like Alex Ross's female Terminator was just like, this like 80s Cindy Crawford with like makeup and like a leather jacket. It looked like Cindy Crawford cosplaying as a Terminator. Do you think he sat there like with magazines with her in it, just copying? I don't know if it was actually Cindy Crawford. It was just very, the very eighties. And I think everyone else was like these, like they were drawn like in the movie, the survivors. They're like these dirty, underground living, you know, malnourished survivors. And it's like the idea that a Terminator is an infiltration unit, and they would show up and like, you know, like you'd be able to spot them from a mile away, and like, oh look at that Cindy Crawford with a leather jacket on. What a horrible infiltration unit. But uh, yeah, that, that's just my my Alex Ross rant, and I, I'm not even I'm not offended or anything they edited that out. It just seemed it struck me as very sensitive for somebody who it was their early work, and you know I mean it's not like anyone's going to pick up the Terminator comic and be like this thing's flawless, you know, 1987 Terminator comic published by Now Comics. Um, now Brandon, thinking about some of the stuff Frank was talking about with Pompeii, does any of this resonate for you? Um, for warheads. Oh, I'm still hung up on the class thing, but um, I, I was debating about how how the idea of class affects your artwork if you're if you reach a level of artistic success where it kind of changes your relationship to other people in relation to your art. You know, like like talking about kind of going back to when you started Inkstead and where I was at with my work. Mm-hmm. It's so different now than than you know where I'm at now. Like I I you know I go to a convention or a comic book store or something, and I uh, the the worst asshole part of me kind of expects people to be nicer to me because you know I, I stand out with a giant tattoo on my neck or whatever, and, and you're like, oh, yeah, you are also you're like six five. How tall are you? I mean, you're yeah, like the tallest. But it is like. That, that, like, has to affect the work in a weird, probably not good way, where, you know, I think I talk about this a lot, about how being a vaguely successful comic artist is a magical trick turning you into an asshole. Well, I mean, <laughs> right now, bluntly speaking, you're, you're, you're sitting somewhat comfortably um, in, 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 in moderate comparisons, especially if you look at, like, Brandon that was roommates with Corey Lewis and James Stokoe. Um, yeah, amazing scam going. It's yeah, you know, more power to you. God bless you. Um, how is that affecting your approach then to to how you're doing your comics now that you have the the amazing scam going and you're doing the comics that you want, um, but you have the opportunity for even bigger comics. Well, it's it's a little scary because I'm I'm doing so much work now that's really fun, but I'm, I really I want to get back to my initial goal. I always think about cartoonists like um, 
I don't know if it was a good example, but I used to say that the comic industry eats, that it eats creators. Mm-hmm. Basically, like, someone would show up, some, like, you know, say, like, Xander Cannon shows up and does um, uh, Replacement Gods in his indie comic in the 90s. And people see that and they're like, oh, awesome, and they grab him, and then he's, like, an inker on an Alan Moore book. And uh, and, and he, I think he's gone on his own one comics and stuff like that, but it's so easy to get kind of caught up in the thing where, you know, it's like, I never thought I would be writing for other people, and now I have, like, you know, three books or whatever I'm working on that I'm writing for other people, and one book that I'm drawing for someone else. And, and part of it for me is just, like, making space to get back to what's important to me about comics and uh, and not, not losing that at all. Like, still, I still want to make, you know, I still want to just sit down and make books that are written, drawn, you know, lettered by me. And the exact, like, hopefully just, like, a better version of what I would do in 2000 or whatever, just kind of in my in my bedroom. But it's hard, you know. It's like, people always talk about kind of Paul Pope as, a, <laughs> as an artist and how it, it's weird, because I feel like it's got to be really hard to be Pope and just do the work because, you know, you do get invited to do all, you know, it's like, <laughs> do you want to sit alone in your room or do you want to, here, do you want to DJ this party, you know? Yeah. Well, at this point, he goes into lockdown. He draws in a room that only two people have access to while he's in there. Yeah, you have to. And I mean, like that, that documentary of the Sama Tezuka where he has an apartment that no one's allowed into, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't even have, like, a big fancy studio. He has this, like, tiny little apartment that just has, like, a kitchen in the bedroom, and only his wife is allowed in there, and, like, his assistants or whatever, like, come to the door and hand him food. And, uh, I don't know, it's, it's probably good for making boundaries. I think about, like, people that are, like, actually successful in comics and how the walls that those guys have to put up, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, being Mobius in France or whatever, or even, like, seeing, you know, like, a, a successful mainstream guy over here. Well, I, even, like, walking through a convention with Mike Elbert and just seeing everybody wants to say hi to him. Yeah, but that Albert's got a good thing going too because he's so loved. Yeah. Like so. nobody who's going to show up and argue with Albert, or if you do, you're such an asshole. <laughs> that, <laughs> that didn't stop you. Oh no, I did argue. Well, he was doing like a before watching stuff. <laughs> uh, and I, I like I like Albert a lot. He's a really nice guy. Do you guys feel a little vindicated? I mean, all of us have been pretty outspoken about our feelings on Before Watchmen. And Alan Moore did that amazing, epic interview. Um, and part of it was his Grant Morrison diss track. And then he just kind of throws in the part about, like, and fuck you if you have anything to do with anyone with Before Watchmen. I don't know. Frank, what are your... Because I, I have feelings that it's... Uh, yeah. I, I mean, like, I'm still... I just feel... I mean, it's tough, you know? Like, I think that the more, you know... Oh, he talks about this stuff like I mean there's this I just it's hard to it's it's hard to I just feel like it, it's it, I don't want to sympathize with him too, too much but it's just it feels like he you know like whatever he's saying he's saying and it's just going to piss people off and then of course it's going to piss people off but that's just the the world we live in now like so it's just maybe not, I'm not saying he should just stop talking about it but it's like it's 
you know, you just start to feel like I feel conflicted about it because it's just like I know that a lot of people doing that work just needed to have a job and you know I'm you know what I mean like whatever I'm pissed off about it and but then like there's this larger issue not larger issue but different issue and so I can sort of like separate the two things a little bit you know and try to talk about it but I know things get heated and then I mean at least I get heated about it or whatever and you know I don't think it's important for a lot of people I mean for me and I guess I'll go on record saying all this stuff is like, you know, in my opinion, without, you know, Alan Moore, I don't, I'm not really doing what I'm doing right now because I probably don't, I don't think there's necessarily a comic book industry. Like I, I, you know, like Alan Moore, Frank Miller, um, you know, Art Spiegelman, you know, some of the people, Chris Ware, you know, people Francois Lully, you know like you know people there's certain people like there wouldn't be a comics industry I mean like Rob Liefeld saved comics you know Jeff Smith saved comics like Paul Pope saved comics you know it's just like these people like there like the people who were I mean I'm not trying to sound like the old man but it's just like I think I think I, like, I think you're much more severe on that end than, than I am where I think the art form I don't really care if the industry survives because the art form is going to be going over. Of course. But it's just like when people... Uh, okay, the, what I get heated about is like, if you start, you know, like, I just give certain... I'm not saying I give them a pass. Like, I get mad at them. But it's just like, I don't know. You know, like, they're it used to... I, I found an Eclipse... I mean, this is going to sound so old manny, and forgive me, but it's just like, <laughs> I found an Eclipse... I, I found an Eclipse comic from 1985 when they were launching... You know, you know. I mean, it was like the same time as the new universe at Marvel. And on the back of the Eclipse comic was a picture of Jack Kirby, and it said, like, Happy Anniversary, Marvel, what about Jack? You know, and it's like that kind of thing was like, you know, whatever that was, that sort of morality or something or just the way you spoke about things was sort of, like, okay. And then now I feel like if you speak about things like that, like, you know, you know, you know, I, you know what I mean? Like, just, it's just that that's like, you can get picked apart with that argument with a million arguments. And to me, I, I don't know, like, it's too easy for me to get, like, I just turn into like the raging bull and just, you know, I don't, just think, there's, I don't think there's really an argument against that kind of stuff though. I feel like the people that, that do work at Marvel or do work at DC kind of have to do it with, it, 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 it's a trade-off for them where they, you know, it's like I was, trying to, I was trying to get Robin to play a um, to play a uh, freeway rap song about how I've got to, you know, how I know what I do is wrong, but I got to sell crack to to, to uh, take care of my kids. And it's like <laughs> the, uh, my friend Cheryl was joking about that on Twitter about how like you know that's what it's like for those people. And, and the thing about like before watching and all that is like it's totally forgettable, like little like fucking side note in comic books, and and that. I think that's even as despicable as the people doing it because it's just a bunch of fucking lip dick people that made lip dick books that changed nothing, that did nothing for anyone, didn't even make them that much money. Like, you know what I mean? Well, they probably spent tons on putting that together. Yeah, it just it says a lot to do with kind of what the comic industry expects and the kind of jokes of creators that people are just like, oh, this guy's, you know, like fucking Adam Hughes is the... Uh, 
you know, don't don't just talk to him. He draws beautiful pictures of, of Wonder Woman or whatever. Not looking at like what's behind the work and why why this person's creating art and what. Well, no, like like somebody, a friend of mine got mad at me because like he was like, well, what about Steve Rude? Like you know, Steve Rude, you know, he needs the money and he's got problems and shit. You know what? And then and I'm like, well. I, just because I'm sorry, you know, yeah, well, I still feel, you know, like, I don't think it's cool, but, you know, I'm sorry, yeah, he does need the money, but, like, what am I supposed to, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, when you start trying to parse out the argument like that, it's just as silly, and it's, I don't even care anymore. I mean, I care, but, like, it's just not worth arguing with people about it, because, yeah, like, I'm not going to change my opinion, and you're not going to change your opinion. You know? If somebody's willing to kind of do things to make the scene shittier, just because they need money. It's like, I would hope that human beings have other options. You know what I mean? Like, oh, sorry, I gotta go. I gotta go shit on your front door. I just, I got, I gotta take a shit. It's my only place I, I can go, you know? It seems really good. <laughs> That's I love your, I love your Canadian sense of humor. Don't blame that one on Canada. That's straight Seattle. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, anyway, I mean, this is, a, this is, a, I, I was, um, I was making fun of Brian Wood again yesterday, as I, as I do, you know, 5.30 every day. And, uh, and I didn't feel, we were talking about this where people were complaining about it, and they're just like, it was six years ago that he, you know, did something shitty. And it was really funny because what my, my making fun of him at this point is to his response to that and how bad that was. And it's, I don't know, it's, just, it's weird. The internet fucks everything up because you get a couple of local, you know, people... That, that makes you feel like it's a larger audience and, and, and so many sane, reasonable people <laughs> feel the need to speak up. Yeah. It's uh, on the note of the internet. I will change topics. It's probably good <laughs> um, And how all of us of how we approach the internet um, has changed since 2.05. Oh, yeah, very much so. Especially for you, Frank, um, going from uh, being anti-Tumblr to to super Tumblr. Yeah, the Tumblr thing was really. Yeah, I was really anti-Tumblr at first. I'm not really. I'm. I'm kind of. I, Tumblr's not my ideal, but it seems to be the place that things exist. It's funny because Frank's Frank's Tumblr is very. Um, it, it's great. Like what Frank did, especially around SPX, where he did the contest where folks had to make a comic within a certain format, and then gave money to the top one. It was really amazing to see how many f people stepped up and entered it. Like how how many uh, overall by the end of that contest? Uh, over a hundred. Jesus. And what was the what was the prize? The top prize? Five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollar first prize. Uh, uh, two hundred dollar, two hundred fifty dollar cast prize. One hundred dollar cast prize, and a bunch of honorable mentions. I partnered up with Copacetic Comics here in Pittsburgh and uh, Big Planet Comics, in and in Bethesda. And um, I, yeah, it was a great. It's great because you know, like the Zarek Grant doesn't exist anymore. And then there's of course uh, the Saw. Uh, sequential artist workshop, uh, Tom Hart's school, um, uh, micro grants. I didn't understand Wait, a single word of that, breaking Brandon. You're breaking no, up there, Brandon. I was saying, I talked to some of the artists that saw the other day. They gave me like a Skype tour of the library, which is kind of cool. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. Uh, 
but Tumblr, like, you know, so the thing about Tumblr, like, for me, is, like, you know, you guys like to just argue and and talk all the time, right? So Twitter's good for you guys, right? You know, I mean, like, I like to argue, too, but, like, you know, it's it, Tumblr's good because you just put up pictures and you don't have to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> and Brandon's approach to Tumblr is just seems to be just, I don't want to say hate-mongering. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't think of a better term. <laughs> do I, do I, all I do is put a picture of the link to Dirty Fair. What do you mean? <laughs> That's my hate coming through. No, but it's like people, for a while, it got pretty, uh, pretty annoying, or I don't know, just something where folks just like, what do you hate today, Brandon? Or let's oh, ask well, you about something you have a problem with. that off. Like, I mean, people, like, that's funny, like, uh, uh, Dane Martin has the ask box on, and sometimes he gets asked uh, the silliest questions. He's like a, a, a great uh, cartoonist from the Midwest who I think doesn't live in the Midwest anymore, but he has a great Tumblr, uh, Dane Martin, and, you know, he has the ask thing on, and, like, turn those off. Like, you don't have to have that on, you know? You don't. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's like... I, sometimes I think those can be really kind of passively, aggressively evil you know i don't know i mean initially people i don't know people would ask me what i thought about different creators that was fine i didn't take it as entirely negative always a lot of it was just like what do you think of this artist who i like which is you know it's fine and and a lot of the stuff like that felt like baiting i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't bother to answer it i'm still waiting for an answer from uh a year ago oh you asked a complicated question what was it about about people that are Examples, um, good examples of a certain thing, I think it was. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's so much easier to pick out the bad than the good. You take the good, you take the well, bad. I like when people ask Brandon, like, what kind of, like, if he likes anime or manga, and you said something like, well, I like manga because I do comics or something. So, like, you had some anime that you liked or something, you listed it off. Like, I like that stuff and i do think that's valuable you know it's just um did you see that thing where michael DeFor like people were asking michael deforge questions like these fucked up questions and then he would just completely answer by saying like well when i ink i use a number three brush and i try i love his his are probably my favorite asks yeah i wish so yeah. that because he's such a vicious thing <laughs> we miss james stoko so, okay, so I'm going to turn the tables on Robin since this is the 500th episode. So, how? I mean, like, you know, you've interviewed everybody, right? Really? Almost. I mean, I have not listened to a full American life ever. I'm just, I'm just fucking with you. I can talk like that if you want, though. But what happens... When you interview, like, the dudes from Europe that, like, I remember, like, listening to this far thing was hilarious because then you you explaining Netflix to him just, like, cracked me up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I use the internet for pornography. Um, that's a far... Wait, explain, explain that to people who did. Listen to the, this far. Explain this. I can't even remember. That interview was, like, 8 in the morning. Um, I went out drinking the night before. Now, who are we talking about? Joan Safar, the Joan Safar interview. Um, I 
that interview was kind of a mess because like we had spent two days trying to figure out when to do it and it's like I'm available I'm available and it's basically okay I got 45 minutes my kids are watching a TV show I won't and, be a, I, know, I, I just think it's amazing that you like you know what I mean that's a great grab I think that's great oh know? I'm I'm super stoked to have it and um, that's kind of one of the things I really love about doing the show is getting these folks that are a challenge to get I know I've had lots of other guys like there's no big Matadi interviews out there um, you know I've got three hours with him and th these really interesting guys they have a lot to say and because they're a little extra work a lot of cartoonists won't do it and they're not part of like the particular popular cycles of comics you know it's not like they have a book coming out or if they have a book coming out it's not from a publisher that pushes them you know it's not like it's yeah. someone from first second books who they are very good at bringing that person on um, yeah. yeah right and there's that thing where the, the the art the work that's being done is so much bigger than the conversation sometimes yeah yeah um my space was gonna say well of course i was gonna say about how you need to have a series of just you talking to a fine artist cartoonist about embarrassing subjects where you like you know you call up like jose munoz and explain to him what twerking is or whatever the Zone So Far one's almost like that. Right. <laughs> With the Netflix part. Um, but, I mean, it's exciting. I haven't interviewed everyone, though. I still haven't talked to Klaus. I still haven't talked to Burns. I still haven't talked to Alan Moore. Yeah. You know? Burns is, yeah, he seems like he, he, he looks like he wants to kill you, but he's actually, like, the nicest guy. I couldn't, I saw him at a party, and I'm just yeah. like, beer? And that's about all I could say to him. Yeah. You just said, like you just have to ask him like or just tell him like you you know like just start talking to him and talk about old comics or whatever but just like he looks like he wants to kill you but he's actually really cool to talk to. I've I've heard he's one of the nicest men in comics. So yeah. Oh, at, at back to return, I, I was looking through. I saw an issue of Walking Dead magazine the other day, and in it they had a they had a um an interview with Stefano in there. Oh, nice. It was in the Walking Dead now, but it's like he's such an interesting part of my like personal. Comics. Say his whole name. I can't pronounce his last name. Gar Gar Guadan Guadino or something. Guadano. Yeah. So he, yeah, he can walk in good now, but like for me, he was a huge influence because he was the translator of a lot of the early Milo Manaro books that I that I got. <laughs> and he's a, a you, know, you know who's uh, uh, translating some of those now is uh, Kevin Heising, his wife Katie. Oh, weird. Oh, the the. Dark Horse stuff? Yeah. Oh, awesome. He took over. She took it over. Yeah, it's, I'm just like, I just think that's just because I just found that out. That's just funny you said that. Interesting. Did she? Huh. She's fluent in Spanish, you know, and then just was translating a bunch of books for Kim Thompson and, and is also, I guess, doing some work for, for Dark Horse. But it's great. Good for her. Yeah. Oh, wait. So, wait, is she translating it from Spanish or something? Mm. Uh, well, I guess they're just redoing the editions or something, so I guess, yeah. Well, chances are folks that are well-versed in European languages quite frequently, especially with Spanish, uh, may also be able to have a pretty decent grasp on Italian. I'm waiting until they let me translate Cardinal Beats into Pig Latin. Yeah, no, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I'm probably giving misinformation, but I'm not, yeah, whatever... I don't know what the additions are, but I, I think she's involved in the translation. I'm sure she's doing a great job. I haven't read the I haven't read any of the Dark Horse editions. I was just 
I was such a fan of the of the like MBN Catlin communication version of. Oh, I know what I want to ask you about different translations is just to interject here, Robin, for one second to ask Brandon something. Is that like the me? Did you ever read Nausicaa, uh, the Viz edition that came out like the last like you know eight years or so? Yeah. Those bigger ones. Have you seen those? Yeah, those are awesome. Yeah, because like the earlier ones that we read like back in the day were fucked up because like they m- would mirror things in this weird way. Like Miyazaki would like say, oh, no, if you're going to, like, you know, print it left to right and instead of flipping everything, they would, it, certain panels would be flipped and not. So it's sometimes, I was always wondering, like, why they're not very readable, you know, and then there was a, even a flipped translation that wasn't very readable, and the most recent one, I think, is supposed to be, um, like, the ideal version to read. Because I think the, the version I read, I started reading the, the old, this one, that, that number one that comes with a cool Mobius poster. And then when I finished the series, it was a more recent translation that read the Japanese direction. There's some stuff too, like like the Appleseed comics that I, I like, I don't know, it's just when I read them, but I drastically prefer the the flipped version that put out that was put out comic book dimensions and has like, re, it's re-lettered in, you know, like Tom Rozowski when I did the lettering. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really... Like, those are my favorite ones, and I know they're not even, like, the Japanese edition. Did you know that... Did we talk about this when I was visiting? Because I think it happened... Like, I wish I could remember his name, but there was a... There's a there's a guy I met from Portland who does, like, for lack of a better term, steampunk comics, but oh, he you're... worked at... Do you remember this story with Lone yeah. Wolf and Cub? Yeah. And so Lone Wolf and Cub, in the flipped American version, they're coming out with those giant trade paperback versions now, like... They flipped it, but then because the samurai swords are specific to, like, how they're on your belt, they would, where the samurai would be, they would flip him back. So, like, it's completely different in every panel, depending (laughs) on the samurais in it. That's going to be some insane amount of work. Those are weird, too, because don't they print those? They're always printed the size of, like, you know, like, postage stamps. No, they now they're printing a slightly bigger version that's actually kind of cool. Mm. Yeah, they're like the Dark Horse Omnibus things. Um, I'm going to take a quick song break, and then we'll be back with uh, special guest David Brothers to talk us, to us about something he's going to have coming on. Da 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 da
To the 500th Ink Studs episode, we are now joined by David Brothers, who uh, has a is going to start doing some stuff for the Ink Studs over the the next month. Uh, yeah, Robin reached out to me last year to basically come up with some content and people to interview and that kind of thing. And this year, I actually took him up on it. So I'm going to take over the Studs for a month, interview some people I think are interesting, and basically uh, just kind of make kind of the podcast that I've wanted to make for a while. Now, have you done interviewing before? Yeah, I've done, uh, you know, mostly through email, but I've moderated several panels and that kind of thing. Uh, I inter- Actually, I interviewed a couple people when I had another podcast for my website that we did for a couple years. So, yeah. Okay. That's on the, on the fourth letter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, David did a good interview with me that I, that I was always really happy with. That he he asked the questions and then and then he asked a bunch of questions and recut it before it was posted online. I thought that was a really interesting way to do it. Oh, that's so thoughtful and <laughs> prepared. I just kind of press record and go with it. But... Well, this is all text too. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's easy in text, but I'll have you know like notes and visual aids and things. Visual aids. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Um, do you have anyone in particular in mind, or are you kind of going to surprise us in February? Uh, they're going to mostly be surprises, but just, uh, like, I want to reach out to Ron Wimberly, who I think is super dope right now. Um, there's a lot of people, I think people will recognize most of the names, but I'm going to try to talk to people from, uh, like, all stripes of comics, not just, like, artists or writers or bloggers, but, like, 
publishers and editors and academics as well. I'm I'm pretty excited to have you kind of join in because I mean you have a, a different approach um, from me and different taste from me. Um, yes, because all I read is manga. I know you were talking about something about like I don't even know what it was like the Dragon Ball Z guy doing a comic that. Oh uh, yeah. Is that the one that Jog was writing about? Yeah, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I thought that was the the short like alien visiting the old man comic. Yeah, it was like Melancholy Old Man Comics running in Shonen Jump, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, that was really a good book. I like that one. What was that, what was that comic called again? Uh, it's got a long title. Chaco the Intergalactic Policeman or Patrolman? Uh, J-A-C-O. We'll get you in the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, and also... Thomas is laughing because he said ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> Just ball. That's that's enough to make me laugh. Um, no, it, it's interesting because also um, just reading when you write, your approach is very different from mine where I'm kind of a haphazard mess who has a page full of notes. Um, you seem like the more studious, prepared kind of guy. I wouldn't say studious, but definitely prepared. Like, it's a cliche, but, you know, what is it? There's nothing worth doing that's not worth overdoing. Like, mm-hmm. I like to come prepared for pretty much anything that can pop up when it comes to, like, writing or interviewing or that kind of thing. So whether that's reading a bunch of books the night before or just, you know, like, writing out detailed notes uh, to reference. Like, I feel like you can tell when, interview- when an interviewer is not prepared. Does it sound that bad when I do it? No, not at all, because you're actually good at this. <laughs> but, like, you know, there are those questions that uh, you ask when, like, you need to scramble for time and that kind of thing. Like, I feel like that's just a waste of time. Right. I, I've had those moments in panels where uh, I have a whole bunch of questions prepared and somehow we burn through them in 20 minutes and then I'm stuck sitting there. Oh, that's what audience Q&A is for, man. Oh, oh yes. You may remember. <laughs> you were in the in the seats for one of those panels. <laughs> um, yes, that was the uh, panel with Brian Lee O'Malley, Brandon, and uh, Adam Warren. And uh, my knowledge of manga was uh, severely um, lacking. In uh, that. That, was, that was a fun panel. I, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, it was good. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Um, now... In the talking about other people's interviews, are there interviewers that you've kind of, uh, and journalists that you've read that kind of influence what you do or you kind of look to that get you excited to do what you're doing? Uh, yeah. Hmm. It's like a three-part question. Uh, ones I've been impressed or inspired by, uh, I think Chris Arendt is really good. Like, he's done a lot of good interviews with artists that I were that I was into, I think, on Robot 6. Right. Um, Bridget Al- Bridget Alverson. Sorry, I can't talk tonight, so of course I come on the radio. Uh, Bridget is excellent. She does a lot of manga stuff, and pretty much every time she gets to really like dig into a subject for Publishers Weekly or elsewhere, she's super sharp. And who else? Jog is good, of course, because he's good at basically everything. Well, this is a thing comical people because. Yeah, I always talk about how when I was first exposed to stuff, David, I kind of was 
really soured on comics journalism in general and just had no interest in it. And then you and Sean Whitsky talking about comic books felt more in line with how I talk about comics. Yeah. Because I think we all grew up on the same stuff or we're into the same things. Is it all like Matthew Dick and John Carpenter? Yeah, pretty much. With a little bit of kung fu in there. <laughs> but I mean, it really does. Like, I know that if I'm interviewing someone and like we're into the same things, like if I'm interviewing you, uh, I can just change, you know, to another direction very easily and still have a good conversation out of it. Mm-hmm. But if they're not familiar with the same things you are, then you're just kind of stuck in, you know, the list of questions. Right. It gives you traffic in all the same currency. Yeah. Exactly. That's something I kind of, when I talk to other folks that are doing podcasts, I like I can tell when they're starting because they've interviewed all their friends. Yeah. Like, don't interview your friends. Push yourself as quick as possible. Find someone who work, their work excites you. Challenge yourself. Um, because that's, like, for me, that's what really gets me going on this, where I, like, learn new stuff. And Oh, yeah. That's pretty much the entire reason I'm going to do this, <laughs> is because I have questions that I'm curious about that no one has asked yet. Yeah, it's always interesting finding that middle point. I was in a I was in a limo <laughs> last, last. Oh, life sounds hard, Brandon. <laughs> no, you don't even know it. No, but I it was David. David was there, but I was. Yeah. I, I they didn't let me in the limo to, though. The, uh, but yeah, no, I was in the I was I was sat next to Valentino and finding a middle point with the creator of Shadowhawk was really interesting. We can talk about underground comics. But um, yeah, David, that must have been murder for you because you actually had to work that convention. Oh yeah, it was like a. 15 or 16 hour day and then. I worked super late the day after, too, because that's printer day. But, I mean, it's like anything else. You just do it, and then it's done. And for those that don't know, David uh, works uh, as a staffer at Image. Uh, what's your actual job title? Uh, content manager, which uh, doesn't really mean anything, but I oversee all the books. I'm checking for printer errors, like script errors, art errors, just anything that would make it look bad when it hits the shelves, I have to catch and make sure it gets fixed. Yeah, in addition right. to like editing a couple books and a bunch of other things. What's the worst mistake you found in one of Brandon's comics? Uh find my mistake. Embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. There was like, an issue of Prophet where New Father was spelled three different ways. Oh yeah, that's that's just you know, <laughs> just my style, man. <laughs> that one we can blame on Ed. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, well, Ed tends to copy exactly what I send him, but I I write in different chunks. So yeah, it's all my fault. <laughs> it's horrible the idea that I've never was a particularly literate human being and that I'm doing things where my job now is to write to track the word <laughs> and help. I'm glad because that keeps me uh, paid, so keep it up. Well, yeah. I mean, and, uh, and, and hopefully in the future I'm going to start picking David's brain more on on story elements and things like that. Oh yeah, we have a lot of plans. There we yeah. go. Um, and plans to start on on exactly the first or maybe a little bit after that? or uh, I'm hoping for that first Monday. Okay. Like I think something like Monday, every other day during the weekdays, if I can pull it off. Nice. I'm excited. It's a, it's a lot of work. Um, yeah, and it's like the first real comics journalism I've done since I started at Image, too. So it feels uh, like it's going to be really interesting for me. Do you, what was the choice in stepping away from comics journalism when you started at Image? Because that was, that was pretty specific. 
Uh, like I'm already mired in ethical compromise, and I felt like working for a comics company and writing about comics for money uh, was crossing some kind of weird line. And like I never made enough to like live off comics journalism anyway. Mm-hmm. And since I figured since I had a job, you know, I could just do it for fun or about craft or something on my own terms instead of, you know, like risking some kind of horrible controversy or blow up. Right, but it's weird that you drew that moral line because it's not a line that's drawn very often. Yeah, no. <laughs> I know. I read an article recently, uh, and I'm not going to... It, it, re- it was a really bad article, and it's obviously the person wrote it because they want to fill a line? gap... What? Was it one of mine? No. <laughs> oh, right. Just making sure. I got a lot of bad ones. Um, yeah. The article was like, there needs to be more of this type of comic. I am a that type of writer. <laughs> yeah. And it, and I've, I've seen that lots in comics journalism um, where folks present what they present. Um, but also are trying to work their way into the system, and I think it's like a really, you know, it's 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 a dangerous, blurry line. And I respect folks that are able to kind of create that division of what is different, and um, you know, are you doing yeah. it for the for the journalism's sake, or are you doing it because you know you're going to get an interview with Dan Dido, and somehow he'll like you. And want to take you out for pizza and strippers, and magic will happen from there on in. Yeah, and that changes the conversation too, because you know people will you get people that seem to very uh, adamant about their opinions, and you start to wonder how much of that is rooted in in their future job prospects. Yeah, yeah, it, that's really aggravating to me because I feel like it makes like it throws all journalists under a bad light because there's so many of them who want to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, this includes friends of mine and total strangers, but it's sort of like, it, I think if you're doing one, you shouldn't do the other. Like, there kind of has to be, like, a barrier between those, because then your word is suspect, because, you know, are you saying this because you work for such and such, or because you hate this other company? Right. It's difficult, too, because there are things like, like, whenever somebody is making work and talking about work in any kind of critical way, their work becomes... Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, like the target or rebuttal. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's always interesting because yeah. they seem like people that are also making the work, and I just sound like I'm talking about myself here, but just in general, like people making the work should have opinions about the work as well. Well, Finographics is very guilty of um, of that when they had their big feud with Kitchen Sink oh, yeah, yeah. in the pages of the Comics Journal. What um, happened there? I'm not... Uh... It's. I'm not going to get into the details because I'll get it wrong. <laughs> and it's kind of a mess that I can't. I, I just there's no way you can get it right. Um, was there wasn't that the argument with Dave Simmons? He was basically accusing them of having a, their own publicity magazine. Yeah, there's that. I mean, they had like a staffer that they like vilified in the pages of the pape of the comic journal. And it's a lot. It's I, I really I like I don't know the exact details of that. I can't remember it. I mean, I've heard different versions. Um, but to me, like that—that's that whole thing is th- problematic um, in an approach. So. Yeah, it's conflict of interest was the word that I couldn't remember earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I think that just tortures your credibility, and that's you know I think it's one of the most important things you have as a culture critic because it's not even really journalism. 
that so much of it is opinion or promo based. Yeah. So if people can't trust that you say like you know this book is good, this book is bad, this book is okay, then you know what are you even doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's very very true. You have any thoughts on any of that, Frankie? I, yeah, I, I mean, I I hear totally what he's saying. I and I I agree. It's just interesting because like at different these different levels, right? Because you're talking like Image or DC or Marvel, and then you're talking Fana, and that's cool. But then like, you know, like I'll promote my student the hell out of my students, and it's a total conflict of interest. But then I, you know what I mean, like. But you're believe, honest about it at the same time. Right. Yeah, right. I think that's the main Still, difference. Like, yeah, but it's like my, <clears throat> it's I get I get it, but like I'm not. I don't really consider myself a comics journalist. I'm more of like a, you know, carny or something really. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I get it, but it's just like, you know, you guys sort of have a different take on it though, right? You know, I mean, like you're talking like when you make that joke, Robin, about like, you know, going out for strippers or whatever, like, you know, that does exist on some level out there, you know, or whatever, but like, you know, in, you know, like, there's so many different levels of it, and I just, I just find that interesting as, like, the, maybe more the mini-comics guy in the conversation or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, I just think, I, I, I have thoughts on, I agree what you guys are saying, but, you know, it's like, it makes me think of, like, Wizard and, and other, you know, and stuff like that, you know, like, um, mm -hmm. in the old days. And it's interesting to hear about old wizard staffers and their careers in comics now. And I don't know. Old wizard staffers. They a whole bunch have uh, jobs for different comic companies. Um, yeah, I'm not going to get into too much. I don't like to talk about wizard. As I, a, I I used to enjoy reading wizard more than I enjoyed often the comics they talked about. Like well, there there was a there was a there was a column in wizard that Jim Rugg always talks about that like. But that it, but he found out about like Dan Klaus, for example. I think through this column, you know, maybe before he ever saw light or whatever, or something. Yeah. So you, you know, there's interesting. There, there are interesting like, uh, you know, maybe gateway. You know, Wizard was a gateway drug for a lot of people. So I always like hope that you know that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah. it's time for a new Wizard magazine. Oh God, I just, I just. Something came up there. You can joke and put Alan Moore on the cover. There we go. <laughs> oh, this is not the uh, magazine you're looking for. Um, so, what was the what was the Image Expo thing like, you guys? What was that like? Oh, it was wild. Uh, Brandon had probably a totally different experience, but just running a convention is totally different from uh, attending it or even working at a con. Because there there's so much more to do. Yeah, were there things that you didn't expect that you had? Like when I worked at a bar, we used to have we used to have to throw water in front of the doors so people would wouldn't sleep in front of them. Is there anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have to do anything like that, but like we stocked up on, like we we're always running out of sharpies and that kind of thing. Like just basic foundational things that you never think about because normally there's plenty. Is there and any it's security just... or anything of that? Like what happens if somebody tries to? attack Robert Kirkman or something with a Warnack Sharpie? Uh, you would have to jump in front of the guy and take that hit for the team. Take that Sharpie? <laughs> <laughs> and if he gave you that talk beforehand, you might die. 
I mean, there's there's sinner security, but you know, I mean, it's really just us and everyone. You know, I guess they paid to get in isn't a good thing to say because that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But yeah, we just cross our fingers. Right. Yeah. Totally. I was I was really sold on it. It was it almost had me worried because I I left really excited about Image. No <laughs> way. Like, normally I'm the cynical one here, but I was like, you know, somebody the book that announced they announced, and somebody the people that I met there, I was like, oh man, this is actually cool. It was like a weird... yeah. It's a different experience. It's more. Uh, I guess it's modeled after Apple keynotes, that kind of thing, where you know it's just like a one-day event. Uh, there's food and drinks after, and it's just very small, and it seems like it's working out. The first year they did a convention, right? Yeah, it was like a real deal con. Uh, I just attended that one. That was way before I started, but it was a couple of days in Oakland, I think. But there's enough conventions happening now. No one needs another convention. Yeah, strangely, like, two or three cons out here in the Bay Area have just shut down recently. Really? Like they're just not coming back. Like, WonderCon leaving was pretty much a deadly blow. Oh. But it's, it's cool to see conventions change and what they can be. Yeah, definitely. Like, not everything has to be about, you know, back issues or... Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frank loves his back issues. I do too, but I spend like I I can't go down that hall in Artist Alley or you know small press anymore. I spend so much money. I I hear you. The the I want to just get into you know indie only uh, back issues. You know it's like the really hard stuff to find is is you know all the stuff that the dealers don't have. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. I've been looking for grass green comics lately, uh, and those are like I've only found two so far, and I check at every con I go to. Wait, which book is it? Grass green. He was an artist in the '60s and early '70s. He did a lot of undergrounds, and they're a mix of like uh, black comics and porno comics. Oh. What are some of the titles? Uh, like Super Soul comics. I've got a list. I'll have to email it to you. Hmm. But there's, I don't buy any of it until I get a chance to. There's a uh, really good underground table at um, Emerald City. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Emerald I think City. I, yeah, I want to. I want to go to Emerald City. I think that would be a fun con to see. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's it's a con that feels like families want to go there, which changes the whole atmosphere. So I'm really into it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, I got this entire run of furlough recently. Oh God. <laughs> no, it's really, don't it's let him start about. talking about this. Don't let him start talking about this. No, no, yeah, I got a uh, uh, Brandon. How dare you? No, I, at the point, it's interesting because it, in the '80s, <laughs> furry comics were actually done on like a professional level, where you had like, you know, even before that, you had like Karl Marx or whatever, and then, uh, and then you have this stuff. You had like Ninja Turtles and Santa Kai and all these guys and Critters and Fantagraphics, and this stuff is basically like 15 years of fanzines. So it's really fascinating because it's all done. Like none of the artists from here really went into 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 like higher paying comics, but there's so much. They're so personal and so kind of counterculture in interesting ways. So anyone that's going to Emerald City, I recommend uh, talking to Brandon about his run of furlough. He's very excited to talk about them. <laughs> um, he, you'll be appearing there. I'm gonna talk about my run of Poison Elves if he wants. I to I have to run of those here as well. Don't you have the How to Write Comics by the Poison Owls guy in your bathroom? It's, uh, it's, it's starting there. He had a thing in the beginning of Poison Owls that was like Dave Sims starting notes or 
notes from the president. But they're kind of depressing to read because I forgot how religious he was. So it's like he's like this heavy metal dude who every once in a while like makes him like jab against gay people, which is super depressing. Didn't wow. he keep all his pens in a coffin? Yeah, no, actually when I was 16, I was a huge Poison Elf fan, and I met him, and he had like a stripper girlfriend and all of his, you know, nothing against strippers or anything, but he had all of his pens in a coffin, and I just was like, oh, this guy's not cool. <laughs> now, I'm going to take this moment to announce something Brandon and I are doing together. Um, sometime around the 1st, hopefully on the 1st, we'll be launching a Kickstarter to uh, fund us doing some live ink studs. Um, the first uh, destination is LA, where we're going to go down and hopefully do a live show in front of an audience with a number of high-ish profile uh, cartoonist guests, and we're also going to try and do a bunch of on-location interviews. Um, I know Brandon really wants to go see Rob Liefeld. I I do, I do. Actually, I'm really excited if, yeah, if he's into it. But yeah, the, the, the whole idea is basically for us to go and yeah, go down to California and, and hang out with all these different artists whose work we're excited about in their in their in their personal spaces or whatever and, and interview them and hopefully even do some like live drawing with them. Yeah. So Brandon's been talking about maybe doing some taco talks, like uh those um French videos you can see where you'll see like Mobius drawing with Hugo Pratt with Neil Adams sitting there or like Starenko on a boat with someone else. And I don't think we'll be doing anything on a boat in LA. Yeah, but you could do like that Seinfeld thing. You could like drive around in a car and like go get coffee or whatever. Cartoonists but, in cars? Yeah. Do you ever see that Rob Liefeld thing where he films himself drawing a comic while driving? No. It's kind of amazing. Uh, YouTube video. And he's on vacation, too. So the, the point is, like, really to, as Brandon said, go into people's studios, uh, take photos of the spaces, maybe get some footage, and really add another dimension to what we've been doing with the Ink Studs. I mean, it's been 500 interviews, 500 shows so far, um, countless interviews, and talk to a lot of folks in comics there's still a lot of people I haven't talked yet so this won't be slowing down but I think um, if w with this Kickstarter it gives us a chance to really do some interesting things and uh, if we hit our target for the LA trip we'll do some other locations um, and try and do a live ink studs well we will do a live ink studs it'll be a free event um, and this kind of pay yeah, for organizing yeah. Brandon could do like a chalk talky kind of, you know, like get up there and do sketches or something. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm always do sketches. Yeah, one of the things we're we're gonna be having lots of signed books and sketches available as rewards. Um, and so, folks that want sketches, that's a good chance to get some if you aren't gonna see Brandon at any signings. And we're also looking at having sketches uh, that'll be collaborative sketches or jam sketches between Brandon and other artists that we'll see on the road. Um, yeah, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a lot of fun and I really look forward to being able to do this with Brandon. I think uh, we'll make some good interviews. Yeah, I, mean, I think it'll be great. So, yeah. Are you guys going to like document the, document the journey at all in addition to the podcast and videos? Lots of photos. 
Yeah, okay. and I thought the idea of making uh, basically like a, a travel game, and even and one idea too was doing um, doing postcards that were like, uh, you know, like illustrated postcards from different locations that we'd be at. Oh, that's cool. Sure. Yeah. I feel like the way the Kickstarters um, fail is when they're they're asking for a lot and don't deliver on it. So I really want to make something that people are excited about and feel involved in, and it isn't just us asking for money so we can swim in it in our bank vaults. One one of the uh, location ideas we had was after we hit a couple of the. Um ones that we really want to do where we know there's a lot of cartoons it gives a lot of chance to talk to folks is also open it up for where folks think we should go you know should we be going to Tampa to interview cartoonists there should we go to like Salt Lake City to interview car cartoonists <laughs> there I don't know if there's any cartoonists in Salt Lake City if there are I'd be very excited to talk to you um, yeah, it would be cool to oh, go ahead I was just throwing up the name of Bay Rouge we could go there <laughs> That's pricey. Uh, it would be cool to kind of build a picture of the scene for a city, too, kind of like what Frank does sometimes. Yeah, and actually one of the things we were looking at when we are planning the L.A. thing is we actually pulled up Tom Spurgeon's old scene list um, where he'll, he has a list of all the scenes and who is in that city. And so it's interesting, mm. we're going through that and like, oh, this person's in L.A. Um, and like, wow, that, I had no idea they were there. And so it'd be interesting to like use something like that and really pull out people and maybe get folks who um, wouldn't necessarily be connected but through this process bring them together like for some reason having Rob Liefeld talking with Jaime Hernandez at something you know like really like not that that would necessarily happen uh, but I'd still be excited to do something like that yeah I have this, I have this dream project that will probably never happen but I think David's probably heard me mention about getting Gilbert Hernandez and Rob Liefeld to do a comic together. And oh, yeah. That would, like, break down all the two-party system of the 90s for me. That would be awesome. Gilbert writing and Rob drawing. I have no idea how they would collaborate or what it, how it would be, but... <laughs> so, yeah, um, you know, we'll have the link up, and I hope folks will support it, and I'm really excited to kind of meet more... meet listeners and meet artists and really... Um, do some exciting things. We're going to have uh, one of the rewards will be going for lunch with us and whatever cartoonist we can... What? <laughs> reward or punishment. It's a bit of both. <laughs> well, it depends if you bring your uh, 150 issues of furlough along. <laughs> no, those, those go with me everywhere now. Oh, no. <laughs> He's got a backpack. So just get that whole portfolio bag he carries with him. It's taking out all the pages and just filling it with furlough issues. And I'm going to get a handcuffed suitcase. Like, <laughs> it's going to be handcuffed to the bone in my wrist. Uh, some other rewards we'll have will be uh, packs of comics that Brandon and I pick out, and one of them is a furry pack. So maybe you can get some of these issues of furlough off of Brandon. Please do. What okay. else? Uh, what other kind of packs are you guys thinking of? Um... Brandon, a furry pack, uh, I think a manga erotica pack. Yeah, I mean, it's lots of... I, I thought it would just be fun to kind of put together a bunch of the comics that are... You know, we have a lot of stores around here that have, like, quarter bins and whatever, and it'd be fun to just find packs of comics that are things that I really enjoy, or Robin really enjoys, and, and uh, you know, be able to send those out. Like, it's so easy to find copies of, like, um, you know, like, uh, Cinder and Ash, the old... Um, 
Jose Luis Garcia Lopez series, I'm a big fan of, or, you know, just the things that you can grab. Balls Chronicles are always making people buy at conventions. Or like, say, you know, some issues of Sinner by uh, Munoz and Sapayo, where folks may have not read that, but send them an issue of that. Like, I used to send packages to Frank of weird comics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I love that stuff now. It's it's like fun. I, yeah, I kind of had to grow into it. Like, I didn't really get the appeal of quarter bins for a long time, or even just, like, the different uh, micro-genres or whatever. But now, it's all I buy at conventions. Yeah, there's so much kind of un, unremembered comics. It's so cool to go through. Yeah, I've got, like, I, I, Steve Ditko romance comics. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, Steve Ditko doing Charlton stuff is actually really kind of interesting here. I still think there should be a, there should be like a Paul Pope curated romance comic line. Hmm. Just like a collection of old stuff. I know. I just, I just mean like because the '90s Pope was very much a guy that was like he had kind of this hope for this future. Of, I remember him saying something like he wanted comics that were sexy enough for girls to read them. And now, like you know, obviously there's a lot of women reading and making comics now. It'd be interesting to kind of. You know. So now, so now he makes comics for twelve-year-old boys. So what's? <laughs> I want to thank you all for coming and joining me this evening. Um, Brandon Graham, Frank Santoro, David Brothers. Um, as you mentioned, David's going to be doing a month of programming for the Ink Studs, and I'm excited just to sit back and watch what David does. Um, yeah, hopefully, I don't die. Hopefully not. Um, I don't think podcasting is that dangerous, <laughs> um, but you never know. It's uh, maybe it could be. Yeah, and I've offered to help out David if he if he has me because some of the people we're talking about here were were old friends of mine. Yeah, I'm definitely going to take advantage of that. There we go. So maybe some surprise interviews from uh, from Mr. Graham and Frank. You can find every Thursday on the Comics yeah. Journal. Every Thursday at the Comics Journal. Today they're well. This will be posted a week from now, so I don't even know what. Do you know what you're gonna write for? Uh... No, because next week I'll be in Angoulême. <laughs> oh wow, that's awesome. Are they gonna let you bring that laugh? <laughs> Are they gonna let you bring that French accent? <laughs> Have you been before, or is this your first yeah, time? Yeah, I um I was once before when Storyville got published, and now Pompeii got published by the same publisher, say Ela, and uh, Dash Shaw is also going. His new school got published over there, and Durf, back Durf is going because he got um uh, his Dahmer book published over there, which was like selection. So our publisher, you know, he he only publishes. Uh, non-French cartoonist, so he's not in competition with other French publishers. It's kind of a brilliant uh, publication. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Sete Lodz is a lot of really beautiful editions, too. Like, they're really yeah. nice-looking books. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, congratulations, Robin! Yeah, 500. 500. Number 500 more to go. Um, <laughs> and then what? <laughs> then I cry myself to sleep every night. Oh...